Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. This Book Collector podcast is a short story written by Alan Munby and published in the Book Collector in the spring issue for 1958. The title is The Comte de Marnay, a short story, and it is read here by Virginia Ferguson. The bold assertion that the Comte de Marnay collected books would be as inadequate as saying that Lucillus was fond of his food. Such an understatement would in no wise depict the all-embracing passion which had dominated the Count's whole life. He pursued the rare, the choice, and the curious with a singleness of mind that was reminiscent of the almost legendary figures who flourished in the heroic days of bibliomania. No Heber or Phillips brought more enthusiasm to the chase, and whereas they were rich, the Count was extremely poor. He had, I suppose, the equivalent of £400 a year, derived from the rents of some small remains of the family property in the Midi, property which the Count never visited, for he was essentially a creature of the town. Such an income would, sixty years ago, have permitted him to live a life similar to that of many impoverished French noblemen. He could have fed well, dressed modestly, and even entertained upon a small scale. Yet he elected to do none of these things. His fare was spartan and his clothes threadbare. He inhabited the first floor of a dilapidated dwelling off the Avenue de Clichy in the north of Paris, a shabby house with the stucco flaking off and several of the unpainted shutters hanging insecurely by a single hinge. For thirty years he had observed the same unvarying practice. One quarter of his income had been used to supply him with the barest necessities of life, and the residue had been dedicated to his library. Down the years this comparatively small annual sum had produced no ignoble result. It must be recollected that many of the Count's rarest treasures had been purchased in the days before the Great War, when works of the first quality were fetching far more modest sums than today. Moreover, the Count was an extremely discriminating buyer, and his ceaseless vigilance over the bookshops and auction rooms of the capital had yielded him a number of acknowledged bargains. It was thus that his library far surpassed that of many a wealthier collector. It used to be possible, I speak of the middle thirties, to visit the Count, if you had armed yourself with a letter of introduction from the director of the Bibliothèque Nationale, for he had not withdrawn so far from the world as to take no pleasure in showing off his collection. The visitor would pick his way through the ragged children that played around his shabby doorway. The concierge would lead you past the open door of the jobbing tailor who occupied the ground floor, past the bold stare of the slatternly girl ironing there, and show you to the stairs. The stone steps by which you mounted to the first floor were unswept and uncarpeted, and the noise of your footfalls warned the count of your arrival, for he was to be found waiting to receive you at the head of the staircase. He must have been well over seventy, yet he held himself well. 
in spite of his frayed high collar and the neatly darned cuffs of his greenish-black morning coat of obsolete cut. He was obviously a man of birth and breeding. His boldness accentuated the intellectual line of the forehead, and he beamed at you through his pince-nez, secured around his neck with a length of black ribbon. The mouth was concealed behind a heavy grey moustache. He would greet you with courtesy that was none the less genuine for being slightly exaggerated. With a bow, he would open the door behind him and stand aside to let you enter. The room in which you found yourself was one of the strangest contrasts. The cheap carpet was worn. The circular table and the chairs around it would not have been out of place in a small provincial hotel. One end of the room was lined with plain deal shelves, reaching to the ceiling, which were crammed with books, for the most part unbound. The experienced eye could see at once that they were in the main bibliographical works, the indispensable reference books of the amateur de livre. In these humdrum, almost drab surroundings, there stood out two oases, a pair of superlatively fine Louis Quinze bookcases, serpentine-fronted lengths of rosewood, with a profusion of ormolu mounts, cupboards below and glass-fronted shelves above. At first sight, the collection housed there was disappointingly small, certainly not more than three hundred volumes, but when their owner began to take them down one by one from the shelves, you realized that considerations of quality, not quantity, had dictated the policy of the purchaser. The Count would begin with the manuscripts, starting with the great 8th-century Gregory from the Corby Scriptorium, and his finger would gently caress the silky surface of the vellum as he turned the leaves. The long series of the Books of Hours would arouse him to a high pitch of animation, and he would discourse with enthusiasm upon the Burgundian court and upon the illuminators and miniaturists, Jacques Mart de Hadin, the de Lambourgs, Gerard Horenbeau, Jean Fouquet. The names came pouring out. A flush mounted to the Count's pale cheeks and the past day went awry. And so on to the incunabula, mostly the work of the early Parisian printers, though a sumptuous copy of the 1488 Homer printed on vellum and one or two splendid specimens of Jensen's press represented the best Italian craftsmanship of the period. But it was the bindings that really took the visitor's breath away. They passed before your eyes in an endless kaleidoscope of red, green, blue, and citron morocco. There was hardly a famous library of the past unrepresented, and with a delicate forefinger the Count would trace out the gilded and embossed arms of de Thau, of Count Hoym, or of the Pompadour, or would point with pride to the neat binder's tickets of Padeloupe or de Rome. And when finally, after two or three hours, you took your departure, you were left with an indelible impression, not only of the collection, but of its owner, of his courtesy and his learning, and preeminently of his taste. And if by worldly standards he was perhaps a little mad, he was at least entirely happy. 
On one occasion only had the Count been persuaded to lend some of his books to a public exhibition, and it had not been a successful experiment. The pangs of parting from them, even for a few weeks, had been almost unbearable, and to counteract this he had haunted the salle where they were exhibited. He had resembled nothing so closely as a young and highly nervous artist giving his first public show. Like an uneasy ghost, he had hovered in the vicinity of his books, straining his ears to catch any comments that might be made upon them. He found it agonizing to be debarred from pointing out their merits, and terrified lest some chance adverse remark might provoke him into some discourtesy. He had been resolute in his refusal to participate in any further exhibitions. In 1935, he produced a privately printed catalogue of his collection, a labour of love upon which he had been working for several years. Each description had been written and rewritten. The distracted printers and blockmakers had cursed the day upon which they had undertaken the work, but finally the finished product of their joint labours was delivered to the Count. An edition limited to a hundred copies printed upon Japanese vellum, and on the front cover were the Mane arms. The distribution of his catalogue had constituted one of the old man's chief delights. It was certainly not broadcast. Indeed, the Count went to considerable pains to defeat the efforts of certain booksellers to secure copies for their customers. It was emphatically not for sale. A few of his fellow collectors received copies, the majority were sent to librarians and bibliographers, who had been of service to him in the past, and each presentation copy was accompanied by a long dedicace in his formal hand. In the autumn of 1936, a caller presented himself. He was a young German librarian whose name, August Hoffmann, was already familiar to his host as the author of some excellent papers in the Gutenberg Monoschrift. The letter of introduction warmly commended him. A true bibliophile, one who will in a few years be in the first rank of contemporary bibliographers, and much else which did credit to the visitor. The Count had no love for Germans, but as a man of culture and a humanist, he felt that connoisseurship should be confined by no frontiers, and so he received the stranger warmly. The German was earnest, deferential, and a good listener. The Frenchman, as always before a sympathetic audience, was his most voluble and most informative. For both of them the afternoon passed all too quickly. When it was time to leave, the young man made a request. He had heard, he said, that the Count had prepared a sumptuous catalogue of his treasures. He knew that it had not been published, but was it possible to purchase a copy of it through a bookseller? Possibly the Count had set aside a few copies to be disposed of in this way. Impulsively, the old man took a copy from the shelf and inscribed his guest's name in it. Below, he wrote a single sentence. In remembrance of a pleasant visit from Monsieur Hoffman. An ambassador does much to dispel the misunderstandings which have existed between our two countries. Then, brushing aside the German's thanks, he showed him politely to the door, 
Early in 1939, the Count suffered from a slight stroke. He quickly recovered, but by the outbreak of war, he had become an old man. He lacked the vigour which, up to a few years before, had characterised him. He was no longer a familiar sight as he strolled from bookseller to bookseller, or picked over the boxes on the banks of the Seine. For days on end he did not leave his library, where he sat fitfully dozing, and at each reawakening he ran his eyes lovingly over the backs of his treasured books. It was because of this mental and physical decay that the outbreak of war left him comparatively unmoved. He realized its implications, of course, but his library had constituted his real world for so many years. That extraneous affairs, however important, were relegated to a subordinate position in his mind. He refused to take seriously the risk of air raids, or rather he took a fatalistic view about them. He would not put his books away because he could not contemplate an existence without them. And as for the possibility that they might be destroyed and himself spared, he sought to obviate it by leaving them less than ever before. He must have been very much alone at this period, for the tailor on the ground floor had left, and apart from the concierge in the basement, the rest of the house was empty. A woman came in daily and ministered to his simple needs, and from her he heard news of the calamities that were overtaking his country. The climax came and passed. Paris was declared an open town. The Germans entered. There Hitler disported himself before the cameras in the Place de la Concorde, and still the old man sat and dozed in his chair. One morning towards the end of July 1940, he heard footsteps upon the stairs, an unfamiliar sound of late. He rose and went out onto the landing. Two men ascended the steps. The first was a German officer in uniform, a Hauptmann, who clicked his heels and saluted. "'The Comte de Marnay?' he asked. The Count nodded dumbly, wondering what his mission could be. Then he caught sight of his companion's face. It was August Hoffmann, the young German librarian. "'God!' thought the Count. "'How insensitive! How tactless these Germans are! How can he come here at such a time and expect me to show my books to an officer of the invading army? He drew himself up. I'm sorry, gentlemen, he said, but my library is not upon view. It has been put away for the duration of the war. Hoffman came forward. I have some official business with you, he said. Perhaps we may come inside? Without waiting for a reply, he brushed past the old man and entered the room. The hobman followed. The Count's pitiful lie was at once exposed, and the two Germans exchanged a significant glance, but made no comment. Hoffman began to speak. His voice was flat and toneless. He had obviously made his speech before. In spite of the Napoleonic precedent for the removal of works of art, he said, the Führer has decreed that nothing shall be taken from the Louvre or any public collection in France. The German authorities will, on the contrary, 
make themselves responsible for their safekeeping in situ. He paused, and the Count nodded. That gentleman is as I expected, he said politely, but without sincerity. Unfortunately, continued the German, the Führer finds himself unable to extend a similar indulgence to private collections. It is considered necessary to take certain pledges for the good behavior of the Parisians, and your library, sir, is among them. It will be removed to Berlin and housed in the Preussische Staatsbibliothek. You will be given a receipt for it. You need have no anxiety as to its safety, and provided your countrymen give no trouble, it will eventually be restored to you. A military lorry will call for it at ten o'clock tomorrow morning, and you will arrange for it to be ready at that hour. And if it should occur to you to mislay any of the choicer items, you will perhaps recall that I have a catalogue of it. It would be difficult to describe the Count's feelings during these remarks, but after the initial sickening shock, it was rage that was uppermost in his brain. He strove, however, to control himself, for he realized the futility of any argument, and, as a man of spirit, he would not demean himself to plead with his enemies. Yet the reference to the catalogue, the crowning piece of effrontery, roused the old man to a protest. Sir, he faltered, you have abused my hospitality. The German had the grace to blush, but he answered defiantly, I am carrying out my orders. It is not for me to question the instructions of my superiors. The hopman placed a document on the table and the two Germans left. The Count glanced at the paper. It was an official order signed by the military governor of Paris. Then suddenly the full realization of the situation dawned on him. The bold front which he had maintained in the presence of the Germans crumbled. His rage evaporated, and he was only conscious of a dull despair. He sank into a chair and buried his face in his hands. His thin frame was wrapped by dry, aching sobs. A little past midnight... A passing police officer noticed smoke pouring from one of the first-floor windows. The street door was locked, the concierge away, and there was some delay in forcing an entry. By the time it was effected, the upper part of the house was well ablaze, and the fire brigade concentrated its energies upon saving the ground floor and the surrounding buildings. By dawn, the fire was under control. By midday, it was possible to place fire escapes against the gaping windows of the gutted first floor. Herr Hoffmann, who had been on the scene since ten o'clock, insisted upon mounting, and he peered into the smouldering ruin within. The floor, which was of stone, had survived, but part of the roof had fallen in, and the chaos was indescribable. He could see enough, however, to be certain that the Count had perished with his library. The little the fire had spared was irretrievably ruined by water. 
the blackened remnants of manuscripts lay still smoking on the floor. Unconsumed fragments lay blistered and scorched, or fantastically warped and crinkled by the fireman's hoses. Air Hoffman descended the ladder, and pushing his way through the throng of idle sightseers, he made his way back to his headquarters. He walked slowly, for he was in a thoughtful mood. He would have to write a full report of the affair to his superiors, and, as they were intolerant of failure, it would require careful drafting. That was Virginia Ferguson reading The Comte de Marnay, written by Alan Munby, and published in the Book Collector issue for spring 1958. The Book Collector is a literary journal founded by Ian Fleming in 1952, covering the writing and collecting of books. You can subscribe to our journal at thebookcollector.co.uk for as little as £6 per month and get access to our complete digital archive. We offer articles, book reviews, obituaries, sales results, catalogues, news, all for just half the price of a Netflix subscription. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.